one of the uh, persistent myths of popular Christian perception and consciousness is that the Old Testament is somehow cruel and demanding and exacting. And the New Testament, especially teachings of Jesus, is easy, grace-filled, and generous. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is surely the greatest single blow to that myth. In particular, the passage today where Jesus says, You have heard it said of old, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully or with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. One of the advantages of this series that we're going through and looking at John Paul II's Theology of the Body is we begin to actually slowly acquire, uh, perhaps for some of us, new spiritual vocabulary. Kind of like being acquainted with kind of the new cartography of the heart as we become acquainted with the life of the inner life of our lives. We've learned phrases like self-donation and the original unity and the spousal meaning of the body, as well as a lot of phrases which we know well from Scripture like one flesh or the image of God, and even some of the negative terms which we must become acquainted with like autonomous solitude and a word like lust. And this is really part of the cartography of the heart that we need to explore today. And this is the third part in this series. Next week, we'll look at uh, singleness and celibacy. But today, we're going to be looking at uh, lust. And one of the dominant themes throughout this whole series is coming to appreciate the sacramental nature of the body. If you find the word sacrament troubling, then perhaps it might be better for you to simply say the phrase, a means of grace. That is to say, our bodies are outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace of God. As Protestants, we affirm that Jesus Christ only instituted two sacraments, the Eucharist and baptism. But as Wesleyans, we always understood that the Holy Spirit is the progenitor of other sacraments or means of grace, such as the uh, reading of Scripture, remember John Wesley at Aldersgate, uh, laying out of hands to heal the sick, anointing of oil has always been a sign of the Holy Spirit, or laying out of hands to ordain someone, we call it ordination. All of those are means of grace where God empowers us and redirects us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things can only be done through the instrumentality of the body. The body becomes the instruments of all of the means of grace. So John Paul II makes the point that not only do we have sacraments flowing from Christ, the two that we know well, the Holy Spirit, which of course are for us means of grace, but also that God the Father is the author of the primordial sacrament, which is the very fact that we are created with bodies to begin with. Our bodies are a form of a sacrament, or particularly the, married, the, 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 uh, the, the act of marriage is a primordial sacrament of God the Father. And this becomes a central theme of this whole series, that sacramental nature. In fact, I want to give you a phrase from John Paul II. I think it's so beautiful. I want to quote it exactly because... It's so Wesleyan and so tweetable. Listen to this. The sacraments infuse holiness into the terrain of our humanity. It's exactly what the sacraments do to us. It's infusions of God's holiness into the terrain of our humanity. It's only the body which makes the invisible visible 
And that's why one of our strong contentions is that the body is fundamentally a theological category, not merely a biological one. Which, by the way, why it's so important that we remind ourselves of the cartography of Christian vocabulary. Because one of the losses in our day, among many, is the loss of Christian vocabulary. And the church has been so quick to adopt the language of the marketplace, the language of business, the language of sociology, et cetera, et cetera, and we have lost our own native language. And this is important to re- one of the many things that your generation must reclaim. This morning, I want to focus on a deep fundamental violation of the sacrament of the body. When we, su- we survey the landscape of sexual brokenness in our world today, undoubtedly there's that one that looms above the all. In fact, it's one of the interesting points that's often made when people say, I've heard it said a lot, why do Christians focus like on homosexuality and like focus on that one sin? I want to say, you know, you're right. But rather than say, therefore, focus on none of them, we should say we want to focus on all of them. We have a lot of sins we should focus on. And the landscape of sexual brokenness is a quite amazing terrain, isn't it? It's not simply homosexuality or gender reassignment or whatever. They get all the press. It's also divorce, adultery, fornication. But even these are the public sins which we see lived out in the press, in the lives of Ellen DeGeneres or Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner or the famous 72-day marriage of Kim Kardashian or the story this week about Lamar Odom being found in a brothel in Nevada. All of this is the constant stuff of the news media. But the public sin that dwarfs them all is, of course, the sin of those slain by lust. Now, we have to be very clear about what lust is and what it is not, because there are several places the church has gone off the rails here. Sexuality and the inherent beauty of it, with its reciprocal attraction embedded in masculinity and femininity, is part of God's glorious design. And within the covenantal bonds of marriage, human sexuality finds its full expression in the unitive self-donation and procreative aspects, which are part of God's God-given desires, attraction, and His design for us to actually enter into that mysterious joy of being a co-creator with God in the birth of children. When we look at the phrase that's used here, well, the phrase actually, it's hoblepon gunakai prosto epithumesai, which, what does that mean? It means to look towards or look to a woman with the intent of lust the intent of sexual desire, an intent of longing after her. Jesus says if you do that, you actually have broken the seventh commandment. Now that is a really important Christian point. In fact, it's actually a very, very important Christian point that actually we'll see at the end infuses so much of the Christian ethic. What is going on? Jesus says essentially to look at someone who is God's sacramental presence, bodily presence in the world, and you look at them in a reductive way, I think that's the best phrase to look at, a reductive way, you have committed your lusting, therefore you're committing adultery. Now a reductive way means that you're reducing them from subject to object. So one of the things we saw in the beautiful earlier episodes of this is that God created us as subjects. 
And when we're brought together in, in union with one another, in this case the self-donation and the one flesh relationship, it is not the destruction of the I. It isn't, it isn't destruction of the subject, which is, by, 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 the, by the way, we are not Buddhist on this point. This is not the doctrine of, you know, anatman in Buddhism, where you lose the self. In the gospel, the self-donation of the other is actually the way in which our self is fully realized, because we realize he brought into communion with the triune God. We saw how in the previous section, how they were naked and felt no shame because they had become one flesh, and therefore they were no longer heaping shame. They, weren't, they had no capacity to heap shame on one another unless that original unity was destroyed, because there's two subjects before God brought into full unity in a beautiful act of self-donation. Now, in the seventh commandment, as we know, the seventh commandment basically said, if you physically, if you're in a covenantal marriage and you physically have a sexual act with another person, not your spouse, you've committed adultery, be it man to woman, woman to a man, or any other kind of sexual engagement. If it's inside marriage, it's called adultery. If, it's, if you're single, it's called fornication. But Jesus points us to two, one, if not potentially two, deeper levels of this that are worth pointing out this morning. He says, first of all, it is lust which destroys what we've called the spousal meaning of the body. That is that place where there's no shame. If you look at someone in a reductive way, you've taken God's subject and made them into an object. You'll notice that what happens is essentially you disembody that person from their own inner self. One of the things that we saw quite beautifully in this whole process is that if God created you as an I, then if you approach somebody, and what is the intention of your heart? Okay, so part of the Sermon on the Mount is this whole point about murder is an outward act, but anger, it comes from the heart. Adultery is an outer act. Lust is a matter of the inner heart. So Christ is moving us to another frontier, which becomes crucial for what we want to look at. So in the fall, men and women covered their very physical markers of their distinctive sexuality as an act of shame. So to look at lust at someone's private parts or private sexual markers is to disembody their physical markers from the whole, and therefore the person embodies them. It's literally to rip someone apart. And I love the, the phrase that John Paul II uses. He calls this the disincarnation of man. In other words, you are actually ripping someone off out of their flesh, out away from their inner life and their inner spirit. This is so dramatic that Jesus goes so far as to say that this is such a disaster, uh, disastrous breaking of the seventh commandment, that to avoid it, you should rip yourself apart before you do that. He says, better to gouge your own eye out. And the, and the Bible has never been a promoter of self-adulation. Yet here you have Jesus saying, it's better to rip your eye out or to cut off your hand than it would be to be sent into hell because of committing this horrible act. So after the fall, these visible signs are covered because of shame and the loss of the original unity. And therefore, Jesus points out that the home of shame, the home of lustful desires, is in the heart, and therefore we must address it there. So the first level is clearly this whole attitude of our hearts. How do we look at one another? How do we look at someone? If we look at them with lustful intent, 
lustful thoughts in our mind, our hearts. This is a sin against God and against that person. But then John Paul II brings it to a second level I never really thought about until I read his work. He raises the question, can you destroy the spousal meaning of the body even within marriage? In other words, to put it very bluntly, can a man look at his own wife with lustful intent? Can a woman look at her husband with lustful intent? Can you commit adultery even within marriage or only outside of marriage? And John Paul II makes a very convincing case, if you have to read his whole case for it, that this, in fact, this can happen even within marriage. Because the point is not simply the physical act. The point is that we depersonalize the other. Whenever we depersonalize somebody and turn into what they do, then, of course, we've, we've actually moved in this direction. By the way, this is the theological basis for all the ways that we depersonalize humanity. This eventually gets into areas way beyond this text, but it gets into how we think about things like the history of slavery, where people, entire peoples are depersonalized, racism, even currently in the news, the whole challenge of the Syrian refugees, how easy to turn them into a block of people, a problem, a humanitarian problem, rather than people in the image of God. The poor, human trafficking, this goes into all kinds of areas. So Jesus calls us to a whole new threshold for how we look at one another, how we interact with one another. In the Old Covenant, we saw the threshold was a bodily act. But we have seen all through Scripture and through human history how easy it is to get around the bodily act. Remember Onan in the Bible? Onan kept the legalistic requirement of the Levite marriage. But because of what he did, by spilling his semen on the ground, he was actually struck dead in judgment. Remember the whole thing about Bill Clinton where he said famously, it depends what the meaning of the word is, is. That whole statement was actually about the technical distinction between a physical act and other kinds of acts created in the body. So Jesus established a new boundary at the seat of our being, which is in the human heart. And this is where Hebrews 4.12, I think, beautifully captures the Christian vision, that the Word of God is living and active than a two-edged sword, piercing the divisions of soul and spirit, and this phrase here, listen, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This becomes the new, really great Christian reality, because the at least rabbinic Judaism, not the heart of the Old Testament, but rabbinic Judaism had again pushed the law to only focus on the outward acts of a person. Christianity is going to say no to that. Jesus reestablishes what was at the heart of the Old Testament, rend your heart, not your garment, saith the Lord. Right? The fact that the gospel penetration must penetrate the human heart. It is not enough. We will never settle as Christians for regulating the actions of the body. Our actions must be regulated by a transformed heart. Heart. That's the power of the gospel. This separates us from Islam, which again focuses on the outer acts of the life and body. And this is, of course, the great gospel point. And so nothing else for us will satisfy unless we've experienced the transformed heart. This is Wesley's whole vision, by the way, that we would no longer be under the gravity of sin and therefore sin management, 
will be brought under the gravity of holy love. It's the redirected heart. That's what the second blessing, that's what the info of the Holy Spirit is all about in our lives. The reoriented heart now moves under the gravity of holy love, and this is the singular great potency of Christian faith and Christian identity. We must never, ever relinquish that great truth. And Jesus, in very forceful terms, reminds us of that, that we are committed as the people of God to a transformed heart that the core of our being has been redirected under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the self-donation of God's love one to another. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that, Lord, you are able to penetrate even the deepest thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, we know how easy it is to obey outward laws and to never, ever allow your Holy Spirit to penetrate the deep recesses of our being. Now, we want this day in the Eucharist that we're about to celebrate to bring your life inside of us as we take these elements. May we take your life in us. And may we find the renewal and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us inside out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.